Book Four, Chapter One, Part Two of The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please go to LibriVox.org. Reading by Andy Minter. The Old Wife's Tale by Arnold Bennett. Book Four What Life Is. Chapter One Frenchams Part Two Three Three days later, Matthew Peel Swinnerton was walking along Bursley Market Place when, just opposite the town hall, he met a short, fat, middle aged lady dressed in black, with a black embroidered mantle and a small bonnet tied with black ribbon and ornamented with jet fruit and crape leaves. As she stepped slowly and carefully forward, she had the dignified, important look of a provincial woman who has always been accustomed to deference in her native town, and whose income is ample enough to extort obsequiousness from the vulgar of all ranks. But immediately she caught sight of Matthew, her face changed. She became simple and naive. She blushed slightly, smiling with a timid pleasure. For her, Matthew belonged to a superior race. He bore the almost sacred name of Peel. His family had been distinguished in the district for generations. Peel! You could, without impropriety, utter it in the same breath with Wedgwood. And Swinnerton stood not much lower. Neither her self-respect, which was great, nor her common sense, which far exceeded the average, could enable her to extend as far as Peel's the theory that one man is as good as another. The Peels never shopped in St. Luke's Square. Even in its golden days the square could not have expected such a condescension. The Peels shopped in London, or in Stafford, at a pinch in Oldcastle. That was the distinction for the ageing stout lady in black. Why, she had not in six years recovered from her surprise that her son and Matthew Peel Swinnerton treated each other rudely, as equals. She and Matthew did not often meet, but they liked each other. Her involuntary meekness flattered him and his rather elaborate homage flattered her. He admired her fundamental goodness, and her occasional raps at Cyril seemed to put him into ecstasies of joy. "'Well, Mrs. Povey,' he greeted her, standing over her with his hat raised. It was a fashion he had picked up in Paris. "'Here I am, you see.' "'You're quite a stranger, Mr. Matthew. I needn't ask how you are. Have you been seeing anything of my boy lately?' "'Not since Wednesday,' said Matthew. "'Of course he's written to you.' "'There's no of course about it,' she laughed faintly. "'I had a short letter from him on Wednesday morning. He said you were in Paris.' "'But since that, hasn't he written?' "'If I hear from him on Sunday, I shall be lucky, bless ye,' said Constance grimly. "'It's not letter-writing that will kill Cyril.' "'But do you mean to say he hasn't... Matthew stopped. "'Whatever's amiss?' asked Constance. Matthew was at a loss to know what to do or say. "'Oh, nothing.' "'Now, Mr. Matthew, do please.' Constance's tone had suddenly quite changed. It had become firm, commanding, and gravely suspicious. The conversation had ceased to be small talk for her. Matthew saw how nervous and how fragile she was. He had never noticed before that she was so sensitive to trifles. 
though it was notorious that nobody could safely discuss Cyril with her in terms of chaff. He was really astounded at that youth's carelessness, shameful carelessness, that Cyril's attitude to his mother was marked by a certain benevolent negligence. This Matthew knew, but not to have written to her with the important news concerning Mrs. Scales was utterly inexcusable, and Matthew determined that he would tell Cyril so. He felt very sorry for Mrs. Povey. She seemed pathetic to him, standing there in ignorance of a tremendous fact which she ought to have been aware of. He was very content that he had said nothing about Mrs. Scales to anybody except his own mother, who had prudently enjoined silence upon him, saying that his one duty, having told Cyril, was to keep his mouth shut until the Poveys talked. Had it not been for his mother's advice, he would assuredly have spread the amazing tale, and Mrs. Povey might have first heard of it from a stranger's gossip, which would have been too cruel upon her. "'Oh!' Matthew tried to smile gaily, archly. "'You're bound to hear from Cyril to-morrow.' He wanted to persuade her that he was concealing merely some delightful surprise from her. But he did not succeed. With all his experience of the world and of women, he was not clever enough to deceive that simple woman. "'I'm waiting, Mr. Matthew,' she said, in a tone that flattened the smile out of Matthew's sympathetic face. She was ruthless.' The fact was, she had in an instant convinced herself that Cyril had met some girl and was engaged to be married. She could think of nothing else. "'What has Cyril been doing?' she added, after a pause. "'It's nothing to do with Cyril,' said he. "'Then what is it?' "'It was about Mrs. Scales,' he murmured, nearly trembling. As she offered no response, merely looking around her in a peculiar fashion, he said, "'Shall we walk along a bit?' And he turned in the direction in which she had been going. She obeyed the suggestion. "'What did you say?' she asked. The name of Scales, for a moment, had no significance for her, but when she comprehended it she was afraid, and so she said vacantly, as though wishing to postpone a shock, "'What did you say?' "'I said it was about Mrs. Scales. You know, I met her in Paris.' and he was saying to himself, "'I ought not to be telling this poor old thing here in the street, but what can I do?' "'Nay, nay,' she muttered. She stopped, and looked at him with a worried expression. Then he observed that the hand that had carried her reticule was making strange, purposeless curves in the air, and her rosy face went the colour of cream, as though it had been painted with one stroke of an unseen brush. Matthew was very much put about.' "'Hadn't you better?' he began. "'Eh,' she said, "'I must sit me.' Her bag dropped. He supported her to the door of Allman's shop, the ironmonger's. Unfortunately, there were two steps up into the shop, and she could not climb them. She collapsed like a sack of flour on the first step. Young Edward Allman ran to the door. He was wearing a black apron and fidgeting with it in his excitement. "'Don't lift her up! Don't try to lift her up, Mr. Peel Swinnerton!' he cried, as Matthew instinctively began to do the wrong thing. Matthew stopped, looking a fool and feeling one, and he and young Olman contemplated each other, helpless for a second, across the body of Constance Povey. A part of the market-place now perceived that the unusual was occurring. It was Mr. Shawcross, the chemist, next door to Olman's, who dealt adequately with the situation— 
He had seen all while selling a Kodak to a young lady, and he ran out with salts. Constance recovered very rapidly. She had not quite swooned. She gave a long sigh, and whispered weakly that she was all right. The three men helped her into the lofty, dark shop, which smelt of nails and of stove-polish, and she was balanced on a rickety chair. "'My word!' exclaimed young Allman, in his loud voice, when she could smile, and the pink was returning reluctantly to her cheeks. "'You mustn't frighten us like that, Mrs. Povey.' Matthew said nothing. He had at last created a genuine sensation. Once again he felt like a criminal, and could not understand why. Constance announced that she would walk slowly home, down the cockyard and along Wedgwood Street. But when, glancing round in her return strength, she saw the hedge of faces at the doorway, she agreed with Mr. Shawcross that she would do better to have a cab. Young Allman went to the door, and whistled to the unique cab that stands for ever at the grand entrance to the town hall. "'Mr. Matthew will come with me,' said Constance. "'Certainly, with pleasure,' said Matthew." and she passed through the little crowd of gapers on Mr. Shawcross's arm. "'Just take care of yourself, missus,' said Mr. Shawcross to her, through the window of the cab. "'It's fainting weather, and we're none of us any younger, seemingly,' she nodded. "'I'm awfully sorry I upset you, Mrs. Povey,' said Matthew, when the cab moved. She shook her head, refusing his apology as unnecessary. Tears filled her eyes. In less than a minute the cab had stopped in front of Constance's light-grained door. She demanded her reticule from Matthew, who had carried it since it fell. She would pay the cabman. Never before had Matthew permitted a woman to pay for a cab in which he had ridden, but there was no arguing with Constance. Constance was dangerous. Amy Bates, still inhabiting the cave, had seen the cab-wheels through the grating of her window and had panted up the kitchen stairs to open the door ere Constance had climbed the steps. Amy, decidedly over forty, was a woman of authority. She wanted to know what was the matter, and Constance had to tell her that she had felt unwell. Amy took the hat and mantle, and departed to prepare a cup of tea. When they were alone, Constance said to Matthew, "'Now, Mr. Matthew, will you please tell me?' "'It's only this.' he began, and as he told it, in quite a few words, it indeed had the air of being only that, and yet his voice shook in sympathy with the ageing woman's controlled but visible emotion. It seemed to him that gladness should have filled the absurd little parlour, but the spirit that presided had no name. It was certainly not joy. He himself felt very sad, desolated. He would have given much money to have been spared the experience. He knew simply that in the memory of the stout, comical, nice woman in the rocking-chair he had stirred old, old things, wakened slumbers that might have been eternal. He did not know that he was sitting on the very spot where the sofa had been on which Samuel Povey lay, when a beautiful and shameless young creature of fifteen extracted his tooth. He did not know that Constance was sitting in the very chair in which the memorable Mrs. Baines had sat in vain conflict with that same unconquerable girl. He did not know ten thousand matters that were rushing violently about in the vast heart of Constance. She cross-questioned him in detail, but she did not put the questions which he, in his innocence, expected, such as, if her sister looked old, 
if her hair was grey, if she was stout or thin, and until Amy, mystified and resentful, had served the tea on a little silver tray, she remained comparatively calm. It was in the middle of a gulp of tea that she broke down, and Matthew had to take the cup from her. "'I can't thank you, Mr. Matthew,' she wept. "'I couldn't thank you enough.' "'But I've done nothing,' he protested. She shook her head. "'I never hope for this. Never hope for it.' She went on. "'It makes me so happy, in a way. You mustn't take any notice of me. I am silly. You must kindly write down that address for me.' and I must write to Cyril at once, and I must see Mr. Critchlow. "'It's really very funny that Cyril hasn't written to you,' said Matthew. "'Cyril has not been a good son,' she said, with sudden, solemn coldness. "'To think that he should have kept that!' She wept again. At length Matthew saw the possibility of leaving. He felt her warm, soft, crinkled hand round his fingers. "'You've behaved very nicely over this,' she said, "'and very cleverly, in everything, both over there and here. "'Nobody could have shown a nicer feeling than you've shown. "'It's a great comfort to me that my son has got you for a friend.' "'When he thought of his escapades, and of all the knowledge unutterable in Bursley, "'fantastically impossible in Bursley, which he had imparted to her son, "'he marvelled that the maternal instinct should be so deceived.' Still, he felt that her praise of him was deserved. Outside he gave vent to a phew of relief. He smiled in his worldliest manner. But the smile was a sham, a pretense to himself, a childish attempt to disguise from himself how profoundly he had been moved by a natural scene. 4. On the night when Matthew Peel Swinnerton spoke to Mrs. Scales, Matthew was not the only person in the Pension Frenchham who failed to sleep. When the old portress came downstairs from her errand, she observed that her mistress was leaving the mahogany retreat. "'She is sleeping tranquilly, the poor one,' said the portress, discharging her commission, which had been to learn the latest news of the mistress's indisposed dog, Fossette. In saying this, her ancient, vibrant voice was rich with sympathy for the suffering animal, and she smiled. She was rather like a figure out of an almshouse, with her pink, apparently brittle skin, her tight black dress, and frilled white cap. She stooped habitually, and always walked quickly, with her head a few inches in advance of her feet. Her grey hair was scanty. She was old. Nobody perhaps knew exactly how old— Sophia had taken her with the pension over a quarter of a century before, because she was old, and could not easily have found another place. Although the clientele was almost exclusively English, she spoke only French, explaining herself to Britons by means of benevolent smiles. "'I think I shall go to bed, Jacqueline,' said the mistress, in reply. "'A strange reply,' thought Jacqueline. The unalterable custom of Jacqueline was to retire at midnight and to rise at five-thirty. Her mistress also retired about midnight, and during the final hour mistress and portress saw a good deal of each other. And considering that Jacqueline had just been sent up into the mistress's own bedroom to glance at Fossette, and that the bulletin was satisfactory, and that Madame and Jacqueline had several customary daily matters to discuss, it seemed odd that Madame should thus be going instantly to bed. However, 
Jacqueline said nothing but, "'Very well, madame, and the number thirty-two? "'Arrange yourself as you can,' said the mistress, curtly. "'It is well, madame. Good evening, madame, and a good night.' Jacqueline, alone in the hall, re-entered her box, and set upon one of those endless, mysterious tasks which occupied her when she was not rushing to and fro, or whistling up the tubes. Sophia, scarcely troubling even to glance into Fossette's round basket, undressed, put out the light, and got into bed. She felt extremely and inexplicably gloomy. She did not wish to reflect. She strongly wished not to reflect, but her mind insisted on reflection, a monotonous, futile, and distressing reflection. Povey! Povey! Could this be Constance's Povey, the unique Samuel Povey? That is to say, not he, but his son. Constance's son? Had Constance a grown-up son? Constance must be over fifty now, perhaps a grandmother. Had she really married Samuel Povey? Possibly she was dead. Certainly her mother must be dead, and Aunt Harriet and Mr. Critchlow. If alive, her mother must be at least eighty years of age. The cumulative effect of merely remaining inactive when one ought to be active was terrible. Undoubtedly she should have communicated with her family. It was silly not to have done so. After all, even if she had, as a child, stolen a trifle of money from her wealthy aunt, what would that have mattered? She had been proud. She was criminally proud. That was her vice. She admitted it, frankly. But she could not alter her pride. Everybody had some weak spot. Her reputation for sagacity, for common sense, was she knew enormous. She always felt, when people were talking to her, that they regarded her as a very unusually wise woman. And yet she had been guilty of the capital folly of cutting herself off from her family. She was ageing, and she was alone in the world. She was enriching herself. She had the most perfectly managed and the most respectable pension in the world, she sincerely believed and she was alone in the world. Acquaintances she had, French people, who never offered nor accepted hospitality other than tea or wine, and one or two members of the English commercial colony. But her one friend was Fossette, aged three years. She was the most solitary person on earth. She had heard no word of Gerald, no word of anybody. Nobody whatever could be truly interested in her fate." This was what she had achieved after a quarter of a century of ceaseless labour and anxiety, during which she had not once been away from the Rue Lord Byron for more than thirty hours at a stretch. It was appalling, the passage of years, and the passage of years would grow more appalling. Ten years hence, where would she be? She pictured herself dying. Horrible. Of course, there was nothing to prevent her from going back to Bursley, and repairing the grand error of her girlhood? No, nothing, except the fact that her whole soul recoiled from the mere idea of any such enterprise. She was a fixture in the Rue Lord Byron. She was part of the street. She knew all that happened or could happen there. She was attached to it by the heavy chains of habit. In the chill way of long use she loved it. There, the incandescent gas-burner of the street-lamp outside had been turned down, as it was turned down every night. If it is possible to love such a phenomenon, she loved that phenomenon. That phenomenon was a portion of her life, dear to her. 
"'An agreeable young man, that Peel Swinnerton. "'Then, evidently, since her days in Bursley, "'the Peels and the Swinnertons, partners in business, "'must have intermarried, or there must have been some affair of a will. "'Did he suspect who she was? "'He had had a very self-conscious, guilty look. "'No, he could not have suspected who she was. "'The idea was ridiculous. "'Probably he did not even know that her name was Scales.' and even if he knew her name, he had probably never heard of Gerald Scales or the story of her flight. Why, he could not have been born until after she had left Bursley. Besides, the Peels were always quite aloof from the ordinary social life of the town. No, he could not have suspected her identity. It was infantile to conceive such a thing. And yet she inconsequently proceeded in the tangle of her afflicted mind— Supposing he had suspected it, supposing by some queer chance he had heard her forgotten story, and casually put two and two together, suppose even that he were merely to mention in the five towns that the pension Frenchum was kept by a Mrs. Scales. Scales? Scales? People might repeat. Now, what does that remind me of? And the ball might roll and roll, till Constance or somebody picked it up. And then— Moreover, a detail of which she had at first unaccountably failed to mark the significance, this Peel Swinnerton was a friend of the Mr. Povey as to whom he had inquired. In that case it could not be the same Povey. Impossible that the Peels should be on terms of friendship with Samuel Povey or his connections. But supposing after all they were? Supposing something utterly unanticipated and revolutionary had happened in the Five Towns? She was disturbed. She was insecure. She foresaw inquiries being made concerning her. She foresaw an immense family fuss, endless tomfoolery, the upsetting of her existence, the destruction of her calm. And she sank away from that prospect. She could not face it. She did not want to face it. "'No!' she cried passionately in her soul. "'I've lived alone, and I'll stay as I am. I can't change at my time of life.' and her attitude towards a possible invasion of her solitude became one of resentment. I won't have it. I won't have it. I will be left alone. Constance, what can Constance be to me, or I to her, now? The vision of any change in her existence was in the highest degree painful to her, and not only painful, it frightened her. It made her shrink, but she could not dismiss it. She could not argue herself out of it. The apparition of Matthew Peel Swinnerton had somehow altered the very stuff of her fibres. And surging on the outskirts of the central storm of her brain were ten thousand apprehensions about the management of the pension. All was black, hopeless. The pension might have been the most complete business failure that gross carelessness and incapacity had ever provoked. Was it not the fact that she had to supervise everything herself, that she could depend on no one? Were she to be absent even for a single day, the entire structure would inevitably fall. Instead of working less, she worked harder, and who could guarantee that her investments were safe? When dawn announced itself, slowly discovering each object in the chamber, she was ill. Fever seemed to rage in her head and in and round her mouth she had strange sensations. Fossettes stirred in the basket near the large desk, on which multifarious files and papers were ranged with minute particularity. Fossette, she tried to call out, but no sound issued from her lips. 
She could not move her tongue. She tried to protrude it, and could not. For hours she had been conscious of a headache. Her heart sank. She was sick with fear. Her memory flashed to her father and his seizure. She was his daughter. Paralysis. Sassai le comble, she thought in French, horrified. Her fear became abject. Can I move at all? she thought, and madly jerked her head. Yes, she could move her head slightly on the pillow, and she could stretch her right arm. Both arms. Absurd cowardice. Of course it was not a seizure, she reassured herself. Still, she could not put her tongue out. Suddenly she began to hiccup, and she had no control over the hiccup. She put her hand to the bell, whose ringing would summon the man who slept in a pantry off the hall, and suddenly the hiccup ceased. Her hand dropped. She was better. Besides, what use in ringing for a man if she could not speak to him through the door? She must wait for Jacqueline. At six o'clock every morning, summer and winter, Jacqueline entered her mistress's bedroom to release the dog for a moment's airing under her own supervision. The clock on the mantelpiece showed five minutes past three. She had three hours to wait. Fawcett pattered across the room and sprang onto the bed and nestled down. Sophia ignored her, but Fawcett, being herself unwell and torpid, did not seem to care. Jacqueline was late. In the quarter of an hour between six o'clock and quarter past, Sophia suffered the supreme pangs of despair and verged upon insanity. It appeared to her that her cranium would blow off under pressure from within. Then the door opened silently, a few inches. Usually Jacqueline came into the room, but sometimes she stood behind the door and called in her soft, trembling voice, Fossette! Fossette! And on this morning she did not come into the room. The dog did not immediately respond. Sophia was in an agony. She marshalled all her volition, all her self-control and strength to shout, Jacqueline! It came out of her, a horribly difficult and misshapen birth, but it came. She was exhausted. "'Yes, madame?' Jacqueline entered. As soon as she had a glimpse of Sophia, she threw up her hands. Sophia stared at her wordless. "'I will fetch the doctor myself,' whispered Jacqueline, and fled. "'Jacqueline!' The woman stopped. Then Sophia determined to force herself to make a speech and she braced her muscles to an unprecedented effort. "'Say not a word to the others!' She could not bear that the whole household should know of her illness. Jacqueline nodded and vanished, the dog following. Jacqueline understood. She lived in the place with her mistress as with a fellow conspirator. Sophia began to feel better. She could get into a sitting posture, though the movement made her dizzy. By working to the foot of the bed, she could see herself in the glass of the wardrobe, and she saw that the lower part of her face was twisted out of shape. The doctor, who knew her, and who earned a lot of money in her house, told her frankly what had happened. Paralysie glossolabiolaringe, was the phrase he used. She understood. A very slight attack, due to overwork and worry. He ordered absolute rest and quiet. "'Impossible,' she said, genuinely convinced that she alone was indispensable. "'Repose the most absolute,' he repeated. She marvelled that a few words with a man who chanced to be named Peel Swinnerton could have resulted in such a disaster. 
and drew a curious satisfaction from this fearful proof that she was so highly strung. But even then she did not realise how profoundly she had been disturbed. 5. My darling Sophia, the inevitable miracle had occurred. Her suspicions concerning that Mr. Peel Swinnerton were well-founded after all. Here was a letter from Constance. The writing on the envelope was not Constance's, but even before examining it she had had a peculiar qualm. She received letters from England nearly every day asking about rooms and prices, and on many of them she had to pay threepence excess postage, because the writers carelessly, or carefully, forgot that a penny stamp was not sufficient. There was nothing to distinguish this envelope, and yet her first glance at it had startled her, and when, deciphering the smudged postmark, she made out the word Bursley, her heart did literally seem to stop, and she opened the letter in quite violent tremulation, thinking to herself, "'The doctor would say this is very bad for me.' Six days had elapsed since her attack, and she was wonderfully better. The distortion of her face had almost disappeared. But the doctor was grave. He ordered no medicine, merely a tonic, and monotonously insisted on a repose the most absolute, on perfect mental calm. He said little else, allowing Sophia to judge from his silences the seriousness of her condition. Yes, the receipt of such a letter must be bad for her. She controlled herself while she read it, lying in her dressing-gown against several pillows on the bed. A mist did not form in her eyes, nor did she sob, nor betray physically that she was not reading an order for two rooms for a week, but the expenditure of nervous force necessary to self-control was terrific. Constance's handwriting had changed. It was, however, easily recognisable as a development of the neat calligraphy of the girl who could print window-tickets. The S of Sophia was formed in the same way as she had formed it in the last letter which she had received from her at Axe. "'My darling Sophia, I cannot tell you how overjoyed I was to learn that after all these years you are alive and well, and doing so well, too. I long to see you, my dear sister. It was Mr. Peel Swinnerton who told me. He is a friend of Cyril's. Cyril is the name of my son. I married Samuel in 1867. Cyril was born in 1874 at Christmas. He is now twenty-two, and doing very well in London as a student of sculpture.' Though so young, he won a national scholarship. There were only eight, of which he won one, in all England. Samuel died in 1888. If you read the papers, you must have seen about the Povey affair. I mean, of course, Mr. Daniel Povey, confectioner. It was that that killed poor Samuel. Poor mother died in 1875. It doesn't seem so long. Aunt Harriet and Aunt Maria are both dead. Old Dr. Harrop is dead, and his son has practically retired. He has a partner, a Scotchman. Mr. Critchlow has married Miss Insull. Did you ever hear of such a thing? They have taken over the shop, and I live in the house part, the other being bricked up. Business in the square is not what it used to be. The steam trams take all the custom to Hanbridge, and they are talking of electric trams. But I dare say it's only talk. I have a fairly good servant— She's been with me a long time, but servants are not what they were. I keep pretty well, except for my sciatica and palpitation. Since Cyril went to London I've been very lonely. 
but I try to cheer up and count my blessings. I'm sure I have a great deal to be thankful for, and now this news of you. Please write to me a long letter and tell me all about yourself. It is a long way to Paris, but surely now you know I am still here you'll come and pay me a visit at least. Everybody would be most glad to see you, and I should be so proud and glad. As I say, I am all alone. Mr. Critchlow says I am to say there is a deal of money waiting for you. You know he is the trustee. There is the half-share of mother's, and also of Aunt Harriet's, and it has been accumulating. By the way, they are getting up a subscription for Miss Chetwind, poor old thing. Her sister is dead, and she is in poverty. I have put myself down for twenty pounds. Now, my dear sister, please do write to me at once. You see, it is still the old address. I remain, my darling Sophia, with much love. Your affectionate sister, Constance Povey. P.S. I should have written yesterday, but I was not fit. Every time I sat down to write, I cried. Of course, said Sophia to Fossette, she expects me to go to her instead of her coming to me. And yet who's the busiest? But this observation was not serious. It was merely a trifle of affectionate, malicious embroidery that Sophia put on the edge of her deep satisfaction. The very spirit of simple love seemed to emanate from the paper on which Constance had written, and this spirit woke suddenly and completely Sophia's love for Constance. Constance! At that moment there was assuredly for Sophia no creature in the world like Constance. Constance personified for her the qualities of the Baines family. Constance's letter was a great letter, a perfect letter, perfect in its artlessness, the natural expression of the Baines character at its best. Not an awkward reference in the whole of it, no clumsy expression of surprise at anything that she, Sophia, had done or failed to do, no mention of Gerald, just a sublime acceptance of the situation as it was, and the assurance of undiminished love. Tact? No, it was something finer than tact. Tact was conscious, skilful. Sophia was certain that the notion of tactfulness had not entered Constance's head. Constance had simply written out of her heart, and that was what made the letter so splendid. Sophia was convinced that no one but a Baines could have written such a letter. She felt that she must rise to the height of that letter, that she too must show her Baines blood. And she went primly to her desk and began to write, on private note-paper, in that imperious large hand of hers that was so different from Constance's. She began a little stiffly, but after a few lines her generous and passionate soul was responding freely to the appeal of Constance. She asked that Mr. Critchlow should pay twenty pounds for her to the Miss Chetwind Fund. She spoke of her pension and of Paris, and of her pleasure in Constance's letter, but she said nothing as to Gerald, nor as to the possibility of a visit to the Five Towns. She finished the letter in a blaze of love, and passed from it as from a dream to the sterile banality of the daily life of the Pension Frenchman, feeling that, compared to Constance's affection, nothing else had any worth. But she would not consider the project of going to Bursley. Never, never would she go to Bursley. If Constance chose to come to Paris and see her, she would be delighted, but she herself would not budge. The mere notion of any change in her existence intimidated her, and as for returning to Bursley itself, no, no. Nevertheless, at the Pension Frenchman the future could not be as the past. Sophia's health forbade that. She knew that the doctor was right. 
Every time that she made an effort she knew intimately and speedily that the doctor was right. Only her will-power was unimpaired. The machinery by which will-power is converted into action was mysteriously damaged. She was aware of the fact, but she could not face it yet. Time would have to elapse before she could bring herself to face that fact. She was getting an old woman. She could no longer draw on reserves. Yet she persisted to every one that she was quite recovered, and was abstaining from her customary work simply from an excess of prudence. Certainly her face had recovered, and the pension, being a machine all of whose parts were in order, continued to run, apparently with its usual smoothness. It is true that the excellent chef began to peculate, but as his cuisine did not suffer, the result was not noticeable for a long period. The whole staff and many of the guests knew that Sophia had been indisposed, and they knew no more. When by hazard Sophia observed a fault in the daily conduct of the house, her first impulse was to go to the root of it and cure it. Her second was to leave it alone, or to palliate it by some superficial remedy. Unperceived, and yet vaguely suspected by various people, the decline of the pension Frenchum had set in. The tide, having risen to its highest, was receding, but so little that no one could be sure that it had turned. Every now and then it rushed up again, and washed the furthest stone. Sophia and Constance exchanged several letters. Sophia said repeatedly that she could not leave Paris. At length she roundly asked Constance to come and pay her a visit. She made the suggestion with fear, for the prospect of actually seeing her beloved Constance alarmed her, but she could do no less than make it. And in a few days she had a reply to say that Constance would have come under Cyril's charge, but that her sciatica was suddenly much worse, and she was obliged to lie down every day after dinner to rest her legs. Travelling was impossible for her. The fates were combining against Sophia's decision. And now Sophia began to ask herself about her duty to Constance. The truth was that she was groping round to find an excuse for reversing her decision. She was afraid to reverse it, yet tempted. She had the desire to do something which she objected to doing. It was like the desire to throw oneself over a high balcony. It drew her, drew her, and she drew back against it. The pension was now tedious to her. It bored her even to pretend to be the supervising head of the pension. Throughout the house discipline had loosened. She wondered when Mr. Marden would renew his overtures for the transformation of her enterprise into a limited company. In spite of herself she would deliberately cross his path, and give him opportunities to begin on the old theme. He had never before left her in peace for so long a period. No doubt she had, upon his last assault, absolutely convinced him that his efforts had no smallest chance of success, and he had made up his mind to cease them. With a single word she could wind him up again, the merest hint one day when he was paying his bill, and he would be beseeching her, but she could not utter the word. Then she began to say openly that she did not feel well, that the house was too much for her, and that the doctor had imperatively commanded rest. She said this to every one except Marden, and every one somehow persisted in not saying it to Marden. The doctor, having advised that she should spend more time in the open air, she would take afternoon drives in the bois with Fossette. It was October, but Mr. Marden never seemed to hear of those drives. One morning he met her in the street outside the house. "'I'm sorry to hear you're so unwell,' he said confidentially, after they had discussed the health of Fossette. 
"'So unwell?' she exclaimed, as if resenting the statement. "'Who told you I was so unwell?' "'Jacqueline, she told me you often said what you needed was a complete change. And it seems the doctor says so, too.' "'Oh, doctors!' she murmured, without, however, denying the truth of Jacqueline's assertion. She saw hope in Mr. Marden's eyes. "'Of course you know,' he said, still more confidentially, "'if you should happen to change your mind. I'm always ready to form a little syndicate to take this,' he waved discreetly at the pension, "'off your hands.' She shook her head violently, which was strange, considering that for weeks she had been wishing to hear such words from Mr. Marden. "'You needn't give it up altogether,' he said. "'You could retain your hold on it. We'd make you a manageress with a salary and a share in the profits. You'd be mistress just as much as you are now.' "'Oh,' she said carelessly, "'if I gave it up, I should give it up entirely. No half-measures for me.' With the utterance of that sentence, the history of Frensham's as a private undertaking was brought to a close. Sophia knew it. Mr. Marden knew it. Mr. Marden's heart leapt. He saw in his imagination the formation of the preliminary syndicate, with himself at its head, and then the resale by the syndicate to a limited company at a profit. He saw a nice little profit for his own private personal self of a thousand or so, gained in a moment. The plant, his hope, which he had deemed dead, blossomed with miraculous suddenness. "'Well,' he said, "'give it up entirely, then. Take a holiday for life. You've deserved it, Mrs. Scales.' She shook her head once again. "'Think it over,' he said. "'I gave you my answer years ago,' she said obstinately, while fearing lest he should take her at her word. "'Oblige me by thinking it over,' he said. "'I'll mention it to you again in a few days.' "'It will be of no use,' she said. He took his leave, waddling down the street in his vague clothes, conscious of his fame as Louis Marden, the great house-agent of the Champs-Élysées, known throughout Europe and America. In a few days he did mention it again. "'There's only one thing that makes me dream of it even for a moment,' said Sophia, "'and that is my sister's health.' "'Your sister?' he exclaimed. He did not know she had a sister. Never had she spoken of her family. "'Yes, her letters are beginning to worry me. Does she live in Paris? No, in Staffordshire. She has never left home.' and to preserve her pride intact, she led Mr. Marden to think that Constance was in a most serious way, whereas in truth Constance had nothing worse than her sciatica, and even that was somewhat better. Thus she yielded. End of Book Four, Chapter One